Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I used to have spotters in the car park, so people would be looking out for gum and any sort of things like that. And then over the radio, it's like, you know them fellas that just been ejected at the back? They're putting balaclavas on and loading machine guns up in the car park. Welcome to The Andy Rowe Show. When someone talks about the 90s rave scene in the UK, they're probably talking about one of Terry Stone's parties. Turbo Terry started the One Nation and Garage Nation promotion companies, responsible for giving over 10 million clubbers the time of their lives. You're going to hear his story about the clubs, the drugs and the thugs, then how his life shifts towards becoming a movie star, working alongside iconic actors like Vinnie Jones playing Tony Tucker in the Rise of the Foot Soldier films. Hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get into this episode, a massive thank you to Manscaped for supporting us this week. Manscaped have launched their new fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Manscaped engineered the ultimate groin and body trimmer that reduces grooming accidents thanks to the advanced skin safe technology. Now I feel confident shaving my boys even while I'm talking to you. I'm not actually, I just thought that'd sound more authentic. Manscaped are also offering us an exclusive 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Just use the code ARS20 when you visit manscaped.com. And it's free shipping anywhere in the world. doesn't matter where you are and 20% off. It's a pretty good deal. Thanks, Manscaped. You know how important it is to keep your immune system as strong as possible, particularly coming into the cold and flu season. The guys over at Suns are always looking out for ways to help you with your health, and they've done it again with their new Ultimate Immune Health Supplement. It's formulated from 11 powerful ingredients and includes all the key vitamins, but its special ingredient is the beta-glucan Wellmune, clinically proven in 12 scientific trials. One trial in marathon runners led to a 40% reduction in respiratory infections. Another study showed a 71% reduction in the number of individuals reporting cold and flu symptoms. So if you're already taking a multivitamin or are looking for something to strengthen your immune system this autumn, then check out suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY30 to get a massive 30 quid off your first order. And importantly, by using our code, you'll be supporting the podcast and the work we do. Terry Stone, thanks for coming on the show, mate. Well, thanks for having us on. My pleasure, my (laughs) pleasure. You've been in a lot of movies, been involved in a lot of movies, but let's go right back to the beginning let's sort of get a gauge of your upbringing right. and your parents let's start yeah. there tell me about your tell me about your parents they're just normal people really i mean uh we lived on a council estate uh, my mum was an office manager and my dad worked in tesco so uh nothing that exciting <laughs> and then you went on to work in mcdonald's didn't you yeah that was my first job and uh i think you know back in the day when all the older generations said oh you know Everybody should join the army and have a couple of years in the army and it makes men and women out of people. I actually think everyone should go and get a job in McDonald's because I think what they do to you and what they put you through, it sort of sets you up for life because if you can do that, you can do anything. Didn't you leave McDonald's under a bit of a cloud? Though? What happened there? What, what, 
Well, I don't know. I, don't, I wouldn't say I left McDonald's under a cloud. I, I got my five stars, you know. I was sort of going up in the world. But um, the McDonald's I worked in was in Camberley in Surrey. You know, obviously, times have changed now. But back then, they was open till midnight. And the pubs used to close at 11 o'clock. So we had this thing called the pub rush between 11 and 12. And if you were... I've been in a pub rush before. Right. I've been so you know what it is, yeah, right? Yeah, but yeah. if you if you were sober or wanting to have a, a quiet meal... No way more painful. Don't go to McDonald's in the pub rush. <laughs> and uh, there was a lot of uh, sort of soldiers that would come from all the shot to Camberley because uh, they thought it was posh. Well, it was posher than all the shot. You know, you had things from food fights to punch-ups to just people shouting and swearing and being sort of leery. So uh, that happened on a regular basis. You know, we regularly had sort of fights with people. I mean, it was quite funny. You know, you saw... Um, all these guys in sort of brown flares and paper hats hitting people with brooms and kicking them up the ass and getting them out because they, yeah, were, sort of, the McDonald's they were like yeah. defacing Ronald McDonald, you know. But um, yeah, but long story short, this guy come in and with his wife and they were, they got to be in their 60s and they were in like black tie, which was a bit unusual for McDonald's pub rush. Yeah. And uh, they were sat there and, and, and the guy sort of called me over and said, oh, can you ask those, those men to keep the noise down because they keep, saying the C word and the F word and my wife's getting really upset and blah, blah. I said, okay, no problem. So I've gone up to the table and I said, guys, you know, that gentleman over there is being offended by your language. Can you just do favor and keep it down? And they went, what that old cunt? Blah, blah, blah. And then they just walked over to the table and one of them got his dick out and put it on the table. Now, obviously, you know, what do you do when somebody does that? It, it, was, it was such a fucking weird thing for anybody to do. I just sort of was laughing. I don't know if I was laughing because I thought it was funny or if I was just laughing out of shock and embarrassment. But obviously he didn't think it was funny that I was laughing. So he sort of stormed out. And uh, then I went up to the guys and said, you know, you're going to have to leave now. That was fucking out of order, blah, blah, blah. But the damage was already done. And the guy wrote a letter to managing director of McDonald's saying he didn't appreciate the fact that somebody come over to the table and put their dick on the table in front of his wife and that. And that the the manager laughed at him or was laughing at it, but I mean it was taken out of context, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that was the the letter. And then I got called in the office saying, you know, what, why was you laughing? And I said, well, I wasn't laughing. I said, you know, you don't come to McDonald's in a pub rush. I mean, the guys, the the area manager knew what it was like. Yeah. Right. So I said, you know, it was probably the worst place they could have picked if they wanted a quiet burger for two. And he said, yeah, but why was you laughing? I said, I wasn't laughing. I was like shocked. You know what I mean? What and I did fuck? actually, I was just like, what the fuck? You know, and I didn't know whether to, to, where to look. I was sort of embarrassed. I was sort of laughing out of shock. I said, you know, it, what would you do? He said, well, I would have said to them, you know, that's really bad. You know, you must put it away. And I, I thought well, with a straight face, you'd be able to do that, would you? And the guy's going, look, you know, because you, you laughed, whether it's your fault or not, we're going to demote you. Now, once you go from wearing the brown flares and the brown shirt and the paper hat, to wearing a shirt and tie and not having to wear the paper and the silly trousers and like it was sort of like you're being demoted so obviously mm. at that point that's when i said to him you know i'm not being funny but i think my career at mcdonald's is over um so you can stick your mcflurry up your mcfucking ass i think that was the words i used or something to that effect i'd say probably for a year i was bouncing from job to job i didn't really know what i wanted to do i was a dustman made up a load of plastic bins in a car park you know, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of had to go at anything, just just yeah. temporary work, you know, just to earn a living, really. So how did you start going into the rave scene? I got a job in sales. I worked in orders, and I did well at that. Then I got a job uh, as a sales rep selling sort of scaffolding and 
I think it was like late 88, early 89, the, the big recession came. And uh, my mum my and dad had split up. My mum had met another person. He bought a house. We had a mortgage, obviously, back then the interest rates went up to 15%. I lost my job. My mum lost her house. And uh, we got housed in sort of emergency council accommodation. And um, for a year, I was sort of unemployed on the dole, just bumming around. And every time I went for a job, no, you know, and I, I didn't study at school, so I, I left with no qualifications. So obviously, back then and, and now, people assume that if you haven't got qualifications, then, you know, you're either thick mm. or you can't bother to work. And yeah. I was neither of those. I just wasn't academic and I wasn't, I didn't like school. And I think the problem is if you don't like school and if you haven't got parents that actually say to you, you've got to work, you've got to revise, you've got to get your grades, then you tend to just do what you want. And mm. and, and I fucked about school. And, and in hindsight, I wish I hadn't have done that now, but it hasn't actually made any difference to my success or my life. But it gave me a slower start. Whereas if I had have got qualifications, if I had have been sensible at school, I'd have probably ended up, but what would have probably happened is I'd have probably got a proper job and I'd probably be employed now and I'd probably be an office manager somewhere earning... 40 grand a year, yeah. do you know what I mean? And I'd probably have a wife and two kids and live in a three-bedroom semi. So, And then I'd be in that sort of trap where I'd just be, that'd be my job till I was 65. And then and then I'd probably, you know, retire and do a bit of gardening. Let's just back it up for a second and talk about One Nation right. and how that got started. Because anyone that has any knowledge of the 90s club scene, right. rave scene, anything, has heard of One Nation. Yeah, I mean, One Nation's 30 years old. Right. You started One Nation. I created it. I it, started yeah. it. Same with Gary's Nation. It's 25 years old. So I had two of the biggest dance music brands. They were both urban uh, music, you know, because that was just the thing that I particularly liked. But how I got into it was, um, you know, people kept saying to me about going to a rave. Back then I wasn't into raves. I was into boxing. I was into running. My idea of a Friday night or a Saturday night out was to go to a club. They put on the slow records, the Luther Vandross music, and, and it was called the erection section, you try and pull a bird and then you'd probably stumble out of the club, have a kebab, have a fight, and then you might, if you're lucky, go home with a girl. But more often than not, you'd probably end up being sick all over yourself and then wake up the next day saying, I'm never drinking again. And that was like a cycle. You know, everybody sort of went out every Friday and Saturday and they just got pissed. And That's what they did. They had a fight, they were sick, they pulled a girl or a guy or whatever, and then that was it. And... Um, I got to the point where when I went to this rave, I got talked into it and I went against, I didn't really want to go, right? But I went in and I walked in and I always remember walking in and it was a little bit like going through a door and all of a sudden you're like, where have you all been all my life? You know, because you had, you know, four girls to every guy, everybody was your friend, right? And everybody wanted to dance to you, everyone wanted to come and, you know, and, and I just thought, wow, nobody's being aggressive, nobody's fighting, Nobody's drinking. Everyone's having a great time. I've got all these girls talking to me and I just thought, wow, you know, this is where I want to be. So that was the hook for me to get involved in the club scene. And um, obviously at the time I didn't realise everybody was off their heads on fucking ecstasy. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. That's why they've all been so friendly and nice. I got into it that way. And then when I left this club, I remember like walking outside and there was these guys giving out flyers. And I said to the fella, you know, do you get paid for this? And he was like, yeah, yeah, there's a company. So I said, oh, have you got a number? So I phoned up. And then I got my friends basically working for free to get me in the club. But I told them, I said, look, I'll get you in the club for free. So you haven't got to pay 20 pounds, but you'll give the flies out for me, which I'm going to get paid for. And they were like, fine with that. So that's how I started on the journey. Now, 
nobody taught me how to be an entrepreneur, but I just saw an opportunity because I wanted to rave, but I didn't have the money. And I didn't want to be on a dole, I wanted to earn money. So giving out flyers outside a nightclub, for somewhere I wanted to go, for me, if there's 10 or 15 of us, that's 100, 150 pound a night, two or three nights a week. You can go clubbing three times a week for free. You earn 450 quid a week. Now, back then, you know, I think the average wage was about 200 pound a week. So I was earning like well over what the, the average was. That's what got me into it. And then um, I, I sort of set up a magazine. Then I'd become a ticket tout. And I was doing all these things and I was earning a really good living. And then someone said to me one day, oh, you should put a rave on. I was like, oh, right, okay. Good idea. And then I was listening to a track called One Nation Under a Groove. And that's what made me then think, well, I'm going to nick that name. I'm going to call it One Nation. And that was how it started. We did our first rave, it broke even. Did the next rave, made money. But then that's when I got on the journey, really. Mm. So I'd say it was probably September 94. So I played it initially because I didn't know what was going to happen. Yeah, you just had but, a crack at but, it. But then it started to make money and things started spinning out. Then we had a club night. So so it went from just being a laugh and we see what happens to then actually having a proper business. And it grew, I think, with a lot of things in life. If you're in the right place at the right time, that helps. Mm. And I think I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And I liked the drum and bass music. I knew what DJs I liked. And, you know... I knew when I went out what I wanted to see. So I just come up mad, mad shit. You know, we had the queen come to one of our raves. The actual queen? Well, no, it was a lookalike, but everyone thought it was a queen. But, but just, we'll call it the queen. Yeah, but we had to the queen come. Yeah, Her yeah. Royal Highness, uh, grazed with her presence. But we had a Prince Prince William lookalike. We had a Posh and Bex lookalike. Didn't we, LEG come along? We had actual LEG. LEG. I mean, was it we, actually the real LEG though, wasn't no, it? But what was we used it? to do, we used to just get these these people. So, so whether they were like celebrities or they were famous people or whether they were lookalikes, for some reason, I just got this thing where I, every time I did an event, I wanted a theme. So we did a thing called United States of Drum and Bass. And then we'd have like a Statue of Libby on the stage. And then we would have, yeah, we'd theme it like American wise. You know, some of the DJs would have some new music and then they would cut like the American national anthem into the into the dub plate, so it yeah. start playing ba 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 ba, and and just silly things like that. And then you'd have a celebrity, whether it's Ali G, whether it was the Queen, you know. But back then there was no social media, so the social media back then was having three thousand people all bringing their mates up, going fucking Queen was at the rave, <laughs> and the DJs going was there was a Queen there last night, and people going no, nah, you must have been off your edge, you know. But it was that thing where it got people talking about it, yeah. and then people would be like, well, who's going to be the next one? You know, yeah. you put special VIP guests and people go, who's that going to be? So it was just making it fun. You know, we still did the raves. We still put on a great lineup. We were innovative in the, in, in the lineups and the DJs and the back-to-back sets and the decor, the lasers. Everything we did was the best. So people would pay to come to our event and we'd sell out. And that wasn't because we were geniuses at marketing. It was just because it's like... You loved raving yourself. Like you knew... Yeah. Because you were a raver, so you knew what people wanted. Yeah, so and, you weren't some guy just trying to make a buck, no. although you were trying to make a buck. You weren't just trying to make a buck. You're like, what would be a fucking cool party? Yeah, and the and the problem is back then, a lot of the promoters they didn't really give a fuck about the punters. They didn't really give a fuck about the rave. They just thought, let's put on a we'll just do any old place, put a cheap sound system in, yeah. book a lineup, not spend too much, and basically just try and take the piss out of the ravers. Yeah, and the thing is, I never did that. If someone said you can make ten grand more. If you cut these corners, 
A lot of people go, fucking hell, 10 grand's a lot of money. But for me, I had a brand, and you know, from that brand, I'd do my big events. But then obviously we were selling merchandise, we were selling tape packs, we were selling CD packs when they become the, the next thing. We had people ringing us up in Ger from Germany, Ibiza, Switzerland, America, Canada. We want to license the name. So obviously if I hadn't spent the money and I hadn't built up the brand, then I wouldn't have had them tools. We were doing some months, 20 events a month. You were 22 when you started this, yeah. right? That's ridiculous. You must have been, uh, you, your head must have been blowing every well, no, see, the, prob the problem with me, right, was, and it's the same now, what I'm doing is a job, right? And back then, people, you go to a, a, a rave or an event, and you know the promoter was, because he'd be on the stage drinking champagne, surrounded by women, basically just living it up. Was that yeah? you? No. I was the guy in a bulletproof vest, baseball cut and tracksuit, big, big boots, just wandering about. If you saw me, you'd have thought I was a doorman. You would never have thought... That's the promoter because mm. I wasn't interested in partying. You know? And I always used to say, I'd love to go at one of my own raves. Yeah. But I never did. And I said, and even if I did have wild parties, right, I wouldn't have had them around my house because then everyone knows where you live. And, you know, you don't know who's come around your house. Mm. People start going, that's where that fella lives. They know I'm putting on all these events. Back then, obviously, there was a lot of cash. So people then start thinking, oh, well, you know, if it's 20,000 people there and they're charging £20 head. Wow, do the maths, it's 400 grand. Now, obviously, there was never 400 grand in cash anywhere, but people would actually assume that. They'd go, well, he must be sitting on the cash around his house. So then you, you could potentially, if people will rob a bank for 10 grand, they're going to come and rob your house if yeah. they think there's 100 grand or whatever. And other promoters I knew used to live in like free bed semis or uh, council places, and they'd have all cash under the bed. And I used to go and put all the cash in the bank and people used to say to me, are you fucking mad? What are you doing? You've got to pay tax on it. I said, yeah, I like paying tax because it means I can go on holiday, I can buy what I want and I can buy a house and I've never got to worry about someone robbing me or getting in trouble with the authorities because I pay my taxes, right? Mm. And I said, if you want to live like that, do, you know, knock yourself out. But if you, you, you used to say, this is what a rape promoter is and you looked at me, you'd say, doesn't make any fucking sense because I wasn't really, I was just about putting on the event, making the money. Mm. And, and obviously back then there was people pulling guns out on people. It was dangerous. Right? Yeah, we'll, we'll get, we'll tap onto that. And I didn't want to be, yeah. I didn't want to be fucking drunk or out me, you know, giving it all the large and then somebody fucking turn me over or shoot me or something. So you had to have your wits about you. Yeah. And, uh, you know, for me, it was like, I think the early days from 89, probably to 92, that was my party days when I'd go out and I'd have a laugh and I'd be partying and having fun. But then when I started promoting, after the first sort of four or five months, I was like, this is a proper thing now. Mm. And I had a couple of people trying to take advantage of me and I thought, I can't have this. So I just thought, right, I'm going to switch my way of thinking and the way I operate. And and that's what I did. You touched on it earlier about everyone being so happy because they're on drugs. And yeah. I'm guessing as a rave promoter, drugs were almost a necessary evil for people to be on ecstasy on those kind of drugs. How did you deal with that? When, when I went into it, you know, if you go out to a rave and people are out there nuts on drugs, every time you pick the paper up, you know, someone's died on the, the ecstasy thing sweeping the nation, you just think, okay, well, in the in the 60s and the 70s, it was like trips, it was marijuana, it was blueies, it was speed. You know, the drugs have been around for years. You know, they were smoking fucking opium in China in the, probably the 1800s, right? Mm. So, so drugs aren't a new thing. But I think because of the rave scene, it was accepted that, you know, if you wanted to go and pop a pill, that's what you did. But for me, 
initially, I didn't really care about it. It, di it didn't really bother me. I, my view going into it was as an ex-raver was, look, look, you know, if you're going to go out and you, if you want to take a knee, take a knee. If you don't want to take a knee, don't take a knee. So for me, it was people's choice. Just like if you want to go out and drink a pint or if you want to drink 20 pints and be sick all over yourself, that's your choice. So for me, that's that was my mindset. But then as I got into it, the press and the police and the local authorities, the councils, they all started to be like, you know, we want to crack down on this. And there was a lot of promoters that were actually selling drugs, right? And they were involved in that game. I was never in that game because I used to make so much money out of putting events on. For me, it was just like, people would say to me, why don't you let this happen? And I'm like, I'm not fucking doing that. Yeah. I said, I'm doing this legitimately. I pay tax, right? I, I can sleep at night. Do you know what I mean? If someone goes over on a knee in my club and dies, I'm not going to be thinking, oh, fuck, was that one of mine? So for me, I was always like, not interested. And I, I took it one step further because obviously if you're the biggest club promoter, the, the, you're a target, right? So the authorities go, well, fucking hell, that guy's doing a lot of events. You know, what's he up to? Blah, blah, blah. And I got spun by the tax man. I got spun by the VAT man. And I didn't find anything. You're right? a pretty good target. You're pretty, like, right? Because pretty you're, target, you're yeah. yeah, there's an old saying, isn't there? You know, if you put your head above the parapet, you're going to get fucking shot. Yeah. And that, the thing is, for me, I was so high profile. Even if I'd have wanted to be in that fucking business, I couldn't have been in mm. it. And and the thing for me is, I just took it one step further. So because back then that people started putting knives out on people, there was people bringing drugs in, there was all sorts of shit going on. So I just said, look, I've got to do my duty of care as a promoter. So I used to hire metal detectors, and I would obviously back then there was no badges, right? So now if you're if you're a doorman you have to get a, a license and you have to wear a badge. And obviously you've got a criminal record, you don't get a badge. You put you put your own firm together, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. So back then, right, you could do what you wanted. But but now you can't do that. You, if, if you haven't got a badge, you don't work, right? So back then, that, that didn't happen. So what I did was I used to say, I'm hiring the club. The club's got a license. Their security are being employed by the club, right, to basically police it, to make sure there's no drug dealing, to make sure there's no violence. So let them do their fucking job that we're paying them for. But I want my security overlooking it. So my security would actually be standing over them, walking everyone through the metal detectors. And the searches then weren't just the pat down. It was take your shoes off. You know, they were grabbing people by the balls. They were grabbing the girls by the breast. I mean, it wasn't a cavity search, but they they were so thorough. They were making right? sure. There was no way anybody would have got a weapon or, or any drugs in that unless they literally put them up their asses. Right or, or or if you all get up, up, up their vaginas, didn't right? they do that? Didn't some girls do that? They though? did because what happened and the thing that, that that blew my mind was we did all that stuff. Yeah, we had fucking guard dogs. We had dogs walking up and down the queue. So if you was if you was coming there to do that, you know you would think fuck me, I'm going to get rumbled here. Right? If they don't get me on the search, they're going to get me inside. Because I used to say to my security, this isn't our venue. But if you see anyone openly selling drugs, tell the security so they get them out because. I don't want that happening in my raves. So what happened was I'd do that. I'd add all that stuff, all them, all that cost, all those layers of protection. And then you walk in the rave and everybody about uh, fucking nuts. And you say, three things have happened here. They've either plugged it up. They've either taken it in a queue or the security actually employed by the club are fucking doing it. And that's the only way they could have got it in there because we wasn't complicit in facilitating it, letting people get away with it. If we saw anybody doing it, we just pick them up and throw them out. Do you know what I mean? Because because for me, you know, we had to be cleaner than clean. We had to be seen to 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 take it seriously. We couldn't yeah. just sit back and go, oh, we don't care. 
you know what I mean? We had to, we had to, we had to care because if you're in, if you're taking money off people, you you know you want them to have a good night. You don't want them to be mugged, and you don't want them dying on fucking drugs. Yeah, so, we'll talk about muggers in a minute. It's, it's just like what, some of the things you guys used to do to actual uh, to dealers, right. uh, drug dealers, when you caught them. Like what what would you how would you deal? Well, we with didn't do anything. We we would we would either hand them over to the authorities, or or there was there was some people in this venue that were openly selling drugs or what we thought was drugs. We said to him, you know, we said to their security, you've got to keep an eye on them. The security didn't really do anything about it. So we then pulled them to one side and said, we know what you're fucking doing, stop doing it or you're going to be out, right? And then they carried on. So then we grabbed hold of them, took them up to this room and said, right, take your clothes off. And, and they had these bags of pills in their pants and, and cash in their socks. So we said, okay, what, what are these? And the guy said, oh, vitamin tablets. Started laughing. We said, oh, great. And what's that money? Oh, that's the money I made for selling the vitamin tablets. And we said, oh, it's really funny. So we set fire to the guy's money and just said, um, said, you're not laughing now, are you? And, and then he said, I'm going to fucking ring the police that you've burnt my money. And we said, well, you've just told us you've basically fucking selling vitamin pills to people, pretending they're fucking drugs. So you're conning people, but you're also nicking money. You're mugging people, basically. So we're going to just throw you out and, you know, do whatever you want. So we threw them out. They rang the police. The police turned up and said, oh... This guy said, you set fire to his money. And we said, uh, well, yeah, we did because um, he was selling drugs in here. And we've got the drugs here, but he says they're vitamin tablets. But, you know, we just, we don't condone what he's doing. So the police actually arrested him. For, uh, and I don't know what the charge was, but he got nicked for selling fucking vitamin Idiot. tablets in a fire. <laughs> Idiot. But, but, you know, that's the sort of stupid shit that you get. And, I mean, the only good thing about that is is obviously all the people that took the vitamin tablets probably felt great the next day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was a story in your book about a guy that got stabbed, right? And you guys looked after him, yeah. And then dealt with the guy, found the guy that stabbed him. Can you talk me through that story? It was at the island in Ilford. We'd always have people up and down the queue outside to make sure people queuing up. This guy was in the queue, and I think someone said to him, "Oh, you got any tickets, mate?" And the guy went, "Oh, I've, I've got a spare ticket." And the guy's going, "Oh, great. You know, how much do you want for it? You know, twenty quid or whatever." And he went, oh, "Great. You know, so." have a look at the ticket. And the guy's given him a ticket and then he's gone to walk off and the guy's grabbed him and said, what are you doing, mate? But then the guy pulled a knife out and stabbed him in the in the shoulder. And then, you know, everyone was going, oh, he's been stabbed, he's been stabbed. And then obviously we got the guy out of the queue and he's like bleeding everywhere, took him to the front. And one of the guys who worked for me used to be in a parachute regiment and he was a medic because obviously they have to be trained to, if one of their people gets uh, to, yeah. to, to patch him up. So he literally just sat him down on, on the stairs outside this rave and just fucking sewed him up outside this rave. I mean, it was just mad. Amazing. Just mad. Just mad. And then we got the fellow with a knife and bashed him up and then led him over to the police. The funny thing was, when we did the rave again, the fella turned up and goes, remember me? And he went like that. And he had fucking... Because obviously this guy didn't do a... It wasn't like a plastic surgeon that did a really neat fucking... It literally just looked like fucking zigzags. But we'd sign him up. Amazing. But, um, all the venue staff were like, fucking hell, where'd you get him from? Do you know what I mean? And he was just so calm. He's just like, no problem, mate. You know, cleaned him all up and he was just like that. 
Okay, you're all right. You feel okay? Do you want a cup of tea with some sugar? Right, do you want to go out the road? Do you want to go home? Yeah, I'll go out the road. Right, have a good night. And that was it. And he's in there just jumping about. Me. Amazing. Can yeah. you tell me more about your firm that you put together? Because there was that guy, there was John John was another guy, wasn't there? Yeah, there was a group. I mean, basically, when we, it all started. So when I first started It's a doing, hell of a lineup. Like, yeah, I mean, you but, go through it. But when I did, when I first started doing the raves, I, I went to the raves thinking, you know, this would be great, this would be fun. But obviously, I'm a 22-year-old kid coming into London and back then Tottenham, Brixton, Hackney, Stratford, they're not fucking nice areas, right? The the West End of London wasn't a nice area. People said, you know, you're going to get fucking turned over. You know, you can't come into London and start doing these fucking raves and just turn up on your own. Do you know what I mean? So I then sort of recruited some guys who um, worked on doors. I had a couple of martial arts guys that I, I knew from the gym. I used to train down a couple of boxers. Um, obviously, because I live near all the shop, there was a couple of XSAS guys, a couple of parachute regiment guys. Then we've got a couple of Marines. So we had a, a, an assorted lineup of special forces, people that just like fucking fighting, basically. So they all liked having a row. So it was a case of when we turned up at a rave, if it went off, they'd actually enjoy it. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't like if it went off, they'd be going off, you know, you know a bit of in the police. They'd be like, right. They'd have it. They'd have it. Yeah. You know, you pull a knife out, they just fucking do you. They won't even they take it off you and stick it in you. I mean, it was that, that's the beauty about having them sort of people is that they're trained to fucking kill people. So if someone pulls a knife on them, they don't run away and go, oh, I don't want any trouble. They, they take it off you and throw you down the stairs. And then so we fell down the stairs, obviously. <laughs> but we had to do that because of, the, one, because I think with, with the door teams in the clubs, we wanted them to know they couldn't take the business. And there was quite a few door teams who actually robbed promoters. Yeah. Even though they didn't rob promoters, they did because they knew what car you was in. They tipped one of their mates. It's like when you go out now, you go in Mayfair, you're sitting in a restaurant, if you've got a nice watch on, one of the waiters is going to fucking tell someone and you're going to walk outside and you get turned over. And that's what's happening more and more now. Really? That's yeah. happening now in London? Absolutely. I know three people who've been stabbed for their watches in the last month, right. Mayfair's meant to be a nice place, right? And that's just how it is. You know, I think, and back then, obviously there wasn't people walking around with Rolexes on in raves. No, but you could but, spot but, a promoter. But, but people were still coming, you know, and you've got a lot of people that were yeah. coming from out of London that maybe weren't a streetwise and they'd get off the train and they wouldn't know where they was going. They'd have a pocket full of cash and their tickets and they get robbed. And, and that's unfortunately what happened. So the, the people I employed were to, were to stop that and also to let the event staff know, you know, everyone's getting searched, everyone's walking through these metal detectors because I was always frightened that somebody was going to get stabbed or shot in the rave. And yeah. that's why I bought those. It was it was to prevent the drugs, but it was also to prevent the, you know, gun crime and the knife crime that was rife in London. You know, they say it's rife now, but it was rife then. Talk me through Garage Nation because that was your next big thing after yeah. One Nation. Talk me through how that came about. And um... well, just I just literally one of the DJs who DJed for us back in the day was um, Jason Kay, and he just said, you know, you should look at doing Garage, yeah, because Garage is blowing up; it's the next big thing. So I sort of thought, well, you know, we could always do Garage Nation, and then we set that up, and that was a big success. But again, it was the right time, right place. It was blowing up. And, you know, we, we were the first ones to discover the So Solid crew. And, you know, we put a lot of EZ, all the big, Miss Dynamite, all the big artists really come from us. You know, same with the drum and bass. We had Hype, Andy C, Sigma, Adam F, DJ Fresh. They all played for One Nation. You know, we give them £100 to play. Now they're 
probably getting hundred thousand pounds yeah to play do you know what i mean it's, and, crazy, uh, yeah. it's great you know and i think the way the scenes evolved one of the main reasons why i come out of the scenes and sold the businesses was because when i turned 30 i just couldn't be bothered with it anymore i'm surprised that you know i never did actually get shot or stand yeah because because i, I mean I, I had plenty of people try and i had plenty of threats and all the rest of it and i look back on it now and i just think how fucking stupid was i and how reckless was i do you know what i mean whereas you know now if 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 i was 19 or 20 now doing that i wouldn't be doing that i'll be just but but it was a different time yeah because wasn't there a case where some guys came into your club and you kicked them out and they're like fuck you i'm gonna go get a machine gun yeah and i was loading them up in the, in the car park and they there was there was like 20 of them can you talk me through that story we was at milton Keynes, and and we always were anti-letting in groups of guys now we don't mind five or six but when there's like 20 guys I've been in that situation right. before. You just think, well, I don't really yeah. want 20 fucking, a group of 20 guys coming in the rave. Yeah. And they weren't nice people. They were horrible. You know, if they went up to any club in London, they would just be like, no, mate, you ain't coming in. They wouldn't have even let them in. But in Manchester, there's like a hierarchy. So if you're in, I think one of the gangs is the Gooch, and then there's another one. Obviously, there's a hierarchy. So the main guys are the older ones, and then these were the younger ones. And they said to one of my guys who's from London who you know knows the top guys in Manchester you know the you know blah 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 you know my uncle this and the other blah blah oh, yeah, yeah I know him yeah you know well we're gonna come in but we don't you know really want you in it tonight well we'll behave you know we we, we you know we respect you it was all so it was all and then the guy came out he said look he said you know we know the people they're with and they'll be all right you know they've said they'd be respectful they won't cause any trouble you know I think they'd be all right. And I said, well, well, if you think they'd be okay, we'd let them in. And then we let them in. And this was at about half 11. And by midnight, people started leaving. And the rave don't really get going to one. So you think, why are people leaving? And I pulled somebody over and I said, why are you leaving? And they said, oh, there's 20 fellas in there with their hoods up. And they keep like going out to my, wife, my girlfriend and touching my ass and kicking me up the ass and shouting at me and all this. So I'm just going to go, oh, I don't want any trouble sort of thing. I said, what do they look like? And it was these guys. So I said, they've got to go. Right, so we went in and just said, right, guys, you know, you said you'd be respectful. You haven't been respectful. You got going. And they, they turned on us and they was like, you don't know who you're dealing with, this, that, and the other, blah, blah. So we just took them out outside and we just beat them up, basically. Um, so there's like 20 of them and how many? 10 of us. And and then we, we went back inside and I used to have spotters in the car park. So people would be looking out for gum and any sort of things like that. And then over the radio, it's like, you know, them fellas, that have just been ejected at the back. They're putting balaclavas and loading machine guns up in the car park. I was like, fuck, you better shut the doors and ring the police. <laughs> so we did that. And within two minutes, the SO19 is there, the armed police in London. I don't know if they have an SO19 in, in Milton Keynes, but there was an armed response unit there with officers in flak jackets, helmets and machine guns. They, it looked like the fucking army had been deployed. You know, people had turned up this rave at half past 12 night and there's all these people with machine guns standing outside with like that with a fucking like helmets Full noise. and um the guy come in he said right you're gonna have to go because these guys aren't gonna kill you they're they're from this firm blah but we said we know they are and, and he said well you know you just you just got to go so they give us an armed police escort home and then my friend who knew the guy in manchester rang him up and said these kids have come down they're taking fucking liberties so he went fucking bananas and then they all got reprimanded they're people we know, 
you shouldn't have fucking done that, blah, 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 blah. So they was all a bit sort of, you know, towels between the legs, you know. Right. But but the thing is, the problem with a lot of these sort of street gang kids is they want to make a rep for themselves. So they give it that, oh, you know, we respect you, right? They come in and they started playing up, thinking we wouldn't do anything. And when we did something, their natural reaction isn't to, we got beaten up, let's go home. It's like, okay, you beat us up, now we're going to fucking kill you. That was their mentality. So, you know, and, and that was that was towards the end of my pr- pr- promoting career and I had three occasions. That was the worst one. But that was when I started thinking, do I really want to be in this business yeah. anymore? Because I just thought in a minute, someone's going to get shot and it's either going to be me or one of my mates or somebody else. And, and when people's lives are on the line like that, you start thinking, whatever m- money I'm earning, is it really worth it? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Yeah, because there was one of the last things to happen that really sort of opened your eyes well. Your eyes were well open already, but opened your eyes to a different career. Was was it the Nottingham and the Birmingham gangs used to come down and to, to one of your events? I'd say probably 99 to 2000. That was when it, you know, started to get really out of van because in the garage scene, you know, all this postcode shit started. Then you had the people from London couldn't go up to Manchester because they're on their turf and the people from Manchester couldn't come into London. Then you had the Nottingham boys, you had the Leicester people. So you had all these like gangs or these, you know, if, if you went to Manchester, it was Moss Side or this Gooch Grat gang. So you had all these gangs and it was all sort of everyone wanted to, you know, get one up. You know, you had all sorts of stuff happening. There was a club in Wolverhampton. It wasn't one of their nights. I remember they had these heavy duty door firm. And they used to have these Rottweiler attack dogs. And somebody come up to the door and they just shot all the dogs. They just went up the door and just went bang, bang, bang and shot the dogs. No way. And someone rang me up and said, fucking hell, that club in Wolverhampton, these fellas have just gone up to the fucking door and they've just shot all the dogs in front of the doorman. And the door was just... <laughs> but that's the sort of shit was going on. And I just thought, you know, this is just getting too much. Um, Some gangs were asking for protection money, weren't they? At one point. Um, I think I think all of them, all of them, yeah, they was were it, all doing it. Was it Brixton that was asking you for protection? Only money? once, yeah, but we didn't pay him. What did you say to them? I just told him. I said, "I ain't paying you anything." I said, "I'll pay someone to fucking take you away." And I and 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 look, would I pay someone to do that? Probably not. But the thing is, at the time, I just thought if I pay him, and it gets out, then everyone else will be going, "Oh, you know, if you're going to come here, you got to pay." The problem in 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 the world is. If you're in a regulated industry, like you work in the sea, yeah, right. The worst thing that can happen to you is you have a problem with the FCA, yeah. But when you're promoting clubs, you could have a local gang want some money. You could have a door team turning you over. You could have somebody smuggled in the back of the rave by the doorman take fifty quid from the door, and he could have a knife and he come and stick it in you. And I just walk past you and go like that. You you had all these things going on, and I just got to the point where I just thought, do you know what? When I started this off, it was fun. And now it's become, I've gone from having a laugh and being surrounded by nice people to be like looking over my shoulder, getting in the car, looking in fucking wing mirrors, 
wondering if somebody's going to fucking find out what I live and turn me over. Mm. And people threatening to kill me and, and all this shit happening with people putting guns out and stuff. And that's re- that was really the catalyst for me getting out of it because I just thought, you know, I've turned 30 now. I've had a good 10-year run at this. I'm still alive. And there's an old saying, you know, quit while you're ahead. And, and that's what I did. And I sold the business. The, the people that had bought One Nation didn't really take it past where I'd taken it. But the people that bought Garage Nation, and now, you know, they've got huge brand. You know, they're doing festivals for 20,000 people. So they've taken yeah. it even bigger than I took it. So You talk about the gangs over here, but didn't you get involved with the Italian mafia at one point? One of my friends was, uh, is the only Englishman ever to be made the mafia. He, he was, He's a really close friend. Yeah, he, he was. He was um, somebody who, you know, if I had a problem and I went to him, he would sort it out. But I, I didn't really have to call on him very often which was good, but, you know, it was always there if I needed it. And I think if people know that you know, people just sort of think, you mm. know, maybe we'll find somebody easier to terrorise or torment. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You you're going to stay away from that once you know yeah. someone's But But I, I never, you know, but it was just through a mutual acquaintance. I met this guy and we got on and we had a laugh and he said, oh, you remind me of me when I was younger. And I said, oh, right, you know, blah, blah. And then he, he sort of told me his story. And I said, what a great story. And um, we just become mates. And uh, I never paid him any money. And I met a lot of these guys in New York and in Vegas. And they were always really polite, really friendly. They was always very respectful to women. They'd always want to sit down and eat fucking 20 courses of mm. pasta. Nice. And, 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 and you know, it was, it was good fun. I mean, it was, I look back on those times and I, I do actually think, you know, what I saw of it was great, but but the reality is, I mean, you know, you, you don't want to get involved with them people because there's only one way you get out, and that's either in jail or dead. So it's, yeah. it's not a lot of fun. Fair enough, like, wanting to get out of that scene after a while because obviously if you had a hell of a ride. No, like, it was good fun. I mean, we had a fun. laugh. Yeah, it was good fun. Then you become a movie star. Like, what? how, how does that transition happen? <laughs> Do you know what? I, Rise I, of the Foot Soldiers, great movie. Well, yeah, well, the, the, the weird thing for me was when I was doing the clubs, as I said, I was just at work, really. I didn't get carried away with being a promoter. Obviously, I was good at what I did, and people knew I was, and I won awards for what I did. So, you know, I suppose... Yeah, you um, won Promoter of the Year or something. Yeah, three or four years in a row for both brands. So, you know, we, there was nobody really doing what we were doing. So it wasn't like we didn't... We, we deserved to win it, do you know what I mean? Because mm. we were doing bigger events, more events than anybody else. And we were breaking. We were doing things that nobody else was doing. So when I look back on it, I didn't think, oh, wow, you know we were winning promoters now because for me, it was just a job. It was like going to work at McDonald's. You know, I go out of work, I'm putting on a rave, I'm putting these DJs on, I'm protecting these people. I'm going home, I'm going to bed. I'm waking up the next day, I'm on the phone, I'm putting another rave together. So for me, I was just caught up in the work. When I sold the business, I had a year of sort of being retired where I didn't really do much. I was sort of not sure what I wanted to do. And then out of the blue, someone phoned me up and said, oh, I'm doing a film, do you want to be in it? So, yeah, right. So I did a part in this film. I've always loved films, but I didn't know if I'd be any good as an actor. And then a few of the people that was on the on the film said, oh, you should think about doing this because I think you'd, you'd be good at it. So I was like, okay, well, what do I need to do? And they said, well, get some pictures done. You've done your first job. So you'll have a show reel. So um, have a go. So I, I, I wrote a letter, got some pictures done, sent it out to 300 agents and said, look, I'm, I'm an actor. I need <laughs> representation. And I got three offers and I took the best one. I did sort of my family, EastEnders, The Bill, uh, some theatre stuff, just the usual stuff jobbing actors do. 
I, I sort of realised I actually wanted to stop actually putting movies together. So my first film was called One Man and His Dog, and it was a dog. Um, it was just like, you know, that's how not to make a film. But that got me going on that that, that journey. And, and I, I think if I hadn't have done that film... You learned the process. Then I wouldn't have done Rolling With The Nines, which got BAFTA nominated and won Rain Dance. And I wouldn't have then done Rise of the Foot Soldier because all of that film unlocked... People started going, oh, Terry's making films now. Oh, maybe you should do this. Oh, well, do you want to buy my book? You, do you know what I mean? So by doing that, it created opportunities. Again, at the time, I didn't know you know, where it was going to lead. But if I look back from when I was 16 to now, 30, I'm 50 now, so that's 34 years. If I go back 34 years of my life and I look at the journey and I look at the mistakes, I look at the fun, I look at the successes, all the things that I've done have kind of led me to where I am today and they've all contributed in in, in that. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. even when I was working at McDonald's, it gave me that work, work ethic. You know, when someone says to you, clean that fucking bin out and you've got to like empty a dirty bin and you're sitting there cleaning it all, and, and you go into your urinals, you've got to undo the urinals, there's piss everywhere. You've got to do that. You couldn't be any more humiliated if you tried, right? So yeah. if you can do that, do any, yeah, walking out the road with a litter, litter patrol jacket on the people spitting at you and calling you Ronald and all that. Starting an escort agency. No, that was the funniest thing ever. Tell me about that, because that's right no, at the beginning. No, which no, is no. so someone just out of the blue said to me, oh, yeah, we should set up an escort agency. And I said, an escort agency? I said, you know, how does that work? And he said, well, look, just put an advert in the paper. People book the, book the girls and yeah, we get paid. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we'll do it then, fella. see what happens. And the guy, the guy didn't really want to set up an escort agency. He's wanted to fuck with the birds for free. Oh, my days. <laughs> so, so it's sort of like, and then, and then what happened was I wasn't really even involved in it. It was just sort of like, you know, like when someone says to you, I wish set up a business, you know, let's do this. And you go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, good idea. Yeah, we'll do it. We'll do it together. Yeah, fine. So I didn't put any money into it. Didn't set up a company. It was just literally a job. Um, ed and somebody newspaper. somebody put an advert in the paper. I think he did it. Or he put the advert in the paper. He said, "I interviewed the girls. I get. Uh, I think it was his girlfriend or his wife or his mum or somebody on the phone. And literally, that was it. I just remember girls actually ringing me saying, "Oh, we're, we're leaving." And I was like, "Leaving? What? What are you on about?" I just wanted to. Oh, we got your number. Said, you know, we're leaving because he keeps turning up at our house at like three in the morning and saying he's got to sleep with us. Oh, and I pulled him aside. I said, mate, what are you doing? I said, you know, this is just fucking insane. I said, if you want to set up an escort, you can't behave like this. And he went, oh, well, that's the only reason why I want to do it. I said, mate, I said, we'll just forget this. It's not something I even want to be involved in. But Jesus. Yeah, it was just, but but as you go through life and you do these, you get these weird offers. And at the time you just sort of go along with it. But I just think, you know, yeah, it, it wasn't sort of on my list. You know, it wasn't, I didn't want to be sort of a but it contributed. king of the escort agencies. No, it wasn't, my, <laughs> wasn't really my thing. Looking at some of the movies you've made, like Rise of the Foot Soldiers, how much of that do you actually take from real life? Because I know... In- it's based on a book. I mean, you know, that's it. Is the book true? Is it all real? Probably not. There's With all these people, everyone embellishes the truth. Mm. Everyone sort of uh, makes up these stories. So, you know, I don't know how much of it's true. I wasn't there. But for me, it's like we got the rights to the book. We got a script written. We made the film, which is a success, and that was it. You know, so that was good enough for us. You've got another one out now? Yeah. It came out on the 3rd of September. Got to, into the top 10. UK Rise of the Foot Soldiers Origins. That's the one, yeah, yeah. With Vinnie Jones and Keith Allen. And that was the first film where I've actually played my first lead role. So that was good. And um, How's it working with Vinnie Jones? Like, Amazing. Hell, I mean, of, a, hell know, of a guy. Great guy. But again, you know, if you'd have said to me, 
you know, when I was working at McDonald's, if you run all these big club nights all around the world, I would have been like, no, nah, I don't think I will be. But then when I was doing that, if you tap me on the shoulder and said, oh, bear in mind, 1998, I think that's when Lockstock come out. Mm. And that's when I was at the height of my sort of club promoting days. Great yeah, movie. That, that was when Lockstock came out. That's what made Vinny a movie star. Yeah. Like, it was his first, first ever breaking film. So if you just said to me in 1998, tap me on the shoulder, see that Lockstock and Sue Smart and Battle, see that guy, Vinny Jones, you wouldn't be working for him. You wouldn't be, you wouldn't be the lead. He's going to be working, you know, supporting you. I'd have been like, what are you talking about, mate? Do you, do you know what I mean? Mm. So, but but for me now, where I'm doing uh, the acting and the producing now, for me, it's just like working at McDonald's. You know, I'm just doing a job. It's not, you know, some people go, what's it like being an actor? And you go, well, you know, occasionally people come up to you and stare at you. And then you look at them and you, you, you don't know whether to say, you right, mate, or smile at them or say what you're looking at. Because, you, you know, because you, when people come up to you and go like that, you think, is this guy going to sort of say, give me a watch or give me a bag or something? Because <laughs> normally people can have a picture. But it's just weird sort of being in that thing because you don't realise yeah. how many people recognise you for the films, even though I've got that silly wig on. People still seem to... Yeah, what's of, with that wig? Where was the inspiration? If you look at the pictures of the guy, Tony Tucker, his hair was really bad. Yeah. It's called a wiggy. So a lot of people go on about the wig and know oh, it's terrible. But look at the pictures of the guy's hair. I mean, you can't tell me that... When, every time he walks out the addresses, people didn't just go, didn't tell him to have that cut, but he just kept going, can you give me that again? You know, uh, Terry, we've only just sort of scratched the surface, but your book, King of Clubs, Sex, Drugs and Thugs, is out now. It's a hectic read. Title says it all, really, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean, there isn't really that much sex in it and there isn't many drugs in it, but I think when they, when they bought the book out, they thought, what happens in the club scene? You know, sex, drugs and thugs. So... I think that was the. There's a little bit that, of it. In there. That wasn't my tagline. That was the tagline of the publisher. They come up with that. But I did do something good in uh, in lockdown. I narrated an audio book. I've listened to it. Yeah, which was fun. You know, again, people kept saying to me, "Why don't you do an audio book? Why don't you do an audio book?" So I just thought, okay, you know, and I, I didn't have anything else to do, so <laughs> <laughs> kept me sane. The things that have come out of lockdown. Well, thank you very, very much for coming on the show and making yeah. the time to have a chat with us. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for your time as well. No as worries. Well. And thank you very much for listening. Uh, make sure you check us out on YouTube, TikTok and Instagram, and we'll be back again next week.